I want to pray for James for his worship. I pray that you would uh, guard his heart and keep him in your word and in your way and uh, protect him from the wiles of the evil one and all the, uh, the things that he might whisper to him and tempt him with. I pray that you would keep him uh, fervent, soft-hearted, attentive, tender, gentle with your people. Uh, first and foremost with his family and pray that his ministry first is to his wife and family and then to your church at Bethel AME. Lord, I pray for James' preparation for preaching tonight at Bethlehem Baptist Church. We pray for his time exposing the word that you'll be glorified in how they spend that time together tonight. <clears throat> and uh, thankful for a official or unofficial uh, just brotherhood that we have with Bethel AME and with James and uh, we pray for your glory in and through that ministry. I pray, Lord, also for how we're going to spend these next few minutes. I'm excited and um, hopeful and expectant about this sermon this morning. And I pray for our people. Uh, I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond any of us. I pray for a attentiveness even for the little ones, especially for the little ones maybe in these next few minutes that they'll... Um, be stilled and quiet, and, um, and maybe even engage what's being shared to some degree. Lord, we're thankful to have little ones to have with us. We're thankful to have little ones tomorrow's church in with us that could be distracting. You've, been, uh, you've blessed us amply in that area. We love you, Lord. We turn these next few minutes over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This last Sunday of the month is the one Sunday of the month that we have littlest ones in with us. Uh, well, not the littlest, not the babies, but uh, smaller ones in with us. <clears throat> so those of you parents that are wrestling or doing what you can to quiet or still, do your best with that, but don't, don't fret too much over that. We can handle a little noise. And um, obviously, if it becomes distracting, then just do what you can there, but... Uh, we're praying for you, cheering for you. This too shall pass. They, they get older, and they start to listen. And this is a little bitty monthly dose for them to sit and learn to listen. These last few weeks, we've been in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and have been on a journey through these six verses that have uh, really been a sweet journey. Uh, I'm hoping that possibly next week uh, we could have a time that's sort of testimony related to things that God has shown us as a people in these six verses uh, we've been camping out sort of the trajectory that we've taken in these six verses is considering Jesus. <clears throat> these different things having to do with these roles that Jesus has served. And then this last week, we sort of brought it in the direction of the house, that this passage is very house-centric. If you want to know a good Bible study tool that you can use to help you really unpack God's Word, look for one thing is look for repeated words or phrases. And in this passage, seven times the word house is repeated in just six verses. This passage ultimately is about God's house and that we are His house, the church. This morning we're going to be finishing these six verses 
So I'd like for us to start reading the whole six verses together, and I have a thought for us just to sort of bring together these last few weeks, and then we're going to climb into this second part of verse 6 today. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory or more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want to share one thought with you before we really move into today's message. First Chronicles chapter 17, uh, if you're looking for a plan for 2013, that's what's coming up, 2013. If you're looking for a plan there um, for this next year for reading, I would encourage you to grab a Bible reading plan. The one that I'm using, I keep in the back of my Bible, and it's amazing. I can't even remember it. McShane, yeah, it's kind of a Scottish-sounding, Irish-sounding deal, which makes me like it all the more. Um, McShane Bible Reading Guide breaks it down into four different servings each day. And if you miss a few days, it might seem insurmountable, and it might, in fact, be insurmountable. I've got a little break there where I miss a few days, and it's just too much for me to tackle. So I jump in on the day that I'm supposed to, and I'm going to come back and pick those up as I'm able. But what I find when I'm reading, just reading text, I find these connections over the course of the day or in sermon preparation that just surprise me. And one of my Bible readings this week was from 1 Chronicles chapter 17. David is so excited about building the temple. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know he didn't build it. But David wants to build that joker. In fact, he's talking to Nathan. And he says, Nathan, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And here's what Nathan says. Nathan says, be all you can be, uh, David. Actually, he says, do all that's in your heart, for God is with you. His version of knock yourself out. Go ahead, build that joker. But then Nathan goes to bed that night, and he has a vision. And God gives him some specifics about this temple and about this house, he word house, and about a son, a future son, that will build the house. Here's what he says. David, through Nathan's vision, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, if you know the story, you know he's talking about Solomon, at least. He shall build a house for me, not you. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. That would be Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, if you know the story there, you know that he's talking about at least Solomon and the temple, the first temple. The second temple we considered last week was Herod's temple. That one was destroyed in 70 A.D. 
But we know ultimately what Nathan is prophesying here, what came to him in his vision, is the reality that what he's talking about ultimately is fulfilled in the person of Christ. He's the ultimate son, and the house that God is ultimately talking about is the church, the people of God. This Christ will be David's offspring, in fact, and if we considered a few weeks ago, he's also Eve's offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, you got to love that. When you see those images and those shadows point towards substance in Christ and his church and his work, we have to stop and enjoy that. That's what we've been doing these last few weeks. This morning, though, we're moving into part B of that last verse. I'm going to read it again, and we're going to camp out on it here in these next few minutes. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want you to imagine for a moment that you work in an office with cubicles and workspaces. Some of you do, so that's not hard. Some of you don't, but you can likely imagine it. Imagine one day that you overhear some neighboring workmates in the next cubicle or cubicles over having a deep conversation. Your interest is piqued as you hear what they're talking about is belief and faith, and salvation. The conversation sounds earnest and sincere. There might be some sniffling. There might be some nose blowing. Chances are there have been some tears shed as one or the other is emotional and burdened about their eternal destiny. Imagine, though, that you're able to hear the content of the conversation in detail, and you hear one person assure the other person that they're bound for heaven because they're such a good person. You hear that for a moment. You hear these two having a conversation about faith, salvation, and one assures the other, hey, you're bound for heaven. You are a good person. You hear the one reassure the other with thoughts that there are lots of bad people out there who do selfish, ugly, thoughtless things, but that you're not that person. You're good and helpful and thoughtful. And you, if you're informed by the Word, if you've been equipped by God's Word and His Holy Spirit, you know that that's not the good news. That's, in fact, bad news, if we're going to be really honest, because The best we have on our best day is filthy rags before a holy God. Your heart is broken as you hear in this conversation they're having a screaming absence of anything having to do with Christ, with anything having to do with His righteous work, anything having to do with His cross, our faith and trust in Him. Complete void. Your heart is broken as you realize this pair you overhear is lost. And they're reassuring one another on a sinking ship with maybe a comforting but, frankly, empty lie. Now, this example I've just given you is a lob. Hopefully, any single one of you could speak truth into that conversation. Hopefully, any single one of you would. You wouldn't say, man, be warm and well-fed. I hope those guys work it out and come to a knowledge of the truth someday because you have been appointed for that moment, likely. You're the one to speak into that context and say, man, on your best day, you need a Savior. Now, that's a lob. 
Here's a more difficult scenario. It's not difficult, I don't think, but it might be. Imagine overhearing workmates having a conversation about salvation. Same scenario. In this case, though, one assures the other, not with thoughts of goodness versus badness. And in this case, they do mention Jesus. Sounds better already. Here the assurance focuses less on goodness and badness and more on an event. More on an experience. This conversation, one assures the other that this prayer that they may have prayed at a point in time in their life and this baptism that they may have had at some point in time in their life is their grounds for assurance. In this conversation, maybe it's connected to an altar call too. You remember that day when they played Just As I Am and on like the 12th verse, man, you let go of that pew back and you bolted down the aisle. Remember that day? That is the conversation. That's how it goes. That's your assurance. This time, though, you don't know what to feel. Maybe you grew up in the Bible Belt and you might actually believe this yourself. We're going to speak to this this morning. Or maybe you grew up in the Bible Belt and you thought to yourself, real faith must be more than that. I don't know how. I don't know what it is, actually, but that sounds malnourished and weak. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself that surely assurance must rest on more than that, but I'm not sure what. I just know that's weak. Maybe you, if you're tuned into our context in Greenville, Texas, and the surrounding area, maybe you realize that many in our context have experienced an event. They can tell you in some cases the date, place, time, hour, location, stanza, that they gave it up, but they have no appetite for the things of God. They have no desire to walk with His people. They have no fruit. They have no evidence in their life that this is a journey. It's just an event, and their assurance is based on that event. You don't see or hear much from them unless somebody's really sick or something's really difficult or someone's died. Maybe you're that tuned into your context, as I hope we all are, to where that's not an unfamiliar scenario. So what do we do with these types of experiences? What do we do with these types of scenarios? How are we to be salty and bright in these sorts of situations? And what are we to believe about assurance? We have to be equipped before we can speak into any of those other contexts. I want you to know this morning that God's Word has some very helpful insights. We don't have to rely on some heartfelt opinions of anybody. We can go to God's Word and get the goods. And this morning is going to be a rock-solid serving on assurance. If you've wondered, am I in? Am I out? Am I his? Am I not? If you've had conversations with others, are you in? Are you out? This is going to be a sermon to help you know how to speak into this. It'll give you something rock-solid to hold fast to. I think it's going to help those that have wondered themselves, and it's going to equip you to speak into those other cubicle conversations that you all will have 
if you're listening. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want you to know this. What this doesn't say is it doesn't say we are his house, meaning the church and the dwelling place for, the, for God, if we're a good person. Just consider, before we consider what this does say, let's consider what it doesn't say. It doesn't say we're his house if we're good people. It doesn't say we are his house if we've been baptized. If you've listened, what I've said about baptism, just even recently, just even a few weeks ago, we have a super crazy high view of baptism. It is a major, beautiful event. But it does not say we are his house if we've been baptized. It doesn't say we are his house if we go to church. If you're listening, you also know that I have a super crazy high view we do of attending to corporate gatherings. We have a responsibility to not neglect that. But it doesn't say we are his house if we go to church. It doesn't say we are his house if we are nice to people. It doesn't say we are his house if we feed the poor, if we clothe the needy, if we encourage the downtrodden. It doesn't say those things. It says we are his house if indeed we, we're going to consider that first, hold fast, this verb we're going to look at, to two things, our confidence, one, and our boasting and our hope, two. That's what it says. So let's break it down. First of all, what does it say? We are his house, i.e. the church, the people of God, the dwelling place for God, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Notice first that it says we. It doesn't say I. It doesn't say you, singular. It says we. This thing that we want so bad as assurance is, first of all, it's a we thing. People that think that they can go faith alone and go renegade and go maverick, they've missed the reality that the dwelling place for the people of God is a people. A dwelling place for, the, for, for God is the people. Plural. See, my faith is private. It's me and God have this thing going. That thing's sort of optional. You've missed. We are the dwelling place for God. We are the house of God if we indeed hold fast. Don't miss the we. It's right there in front of us. And it's so important. You're not a lone wolf. You're not a maverick. You're not a renegade. You're the people of God. You're community you're the bride of Christ. You're a body of believers. Now, this verb, hold fast. <clears throat> I like to define verbs or understand verbs. Give him just a second. I like to understand what a verb means by looking at other passages that used it. Now, the best way to do that is to go within the same book and find where that author used that word and how he used it. The second best way is to find, even in the same testament, where another author may have used that word. So that's what we're going to do first, just a couple of little samples. You stay in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to share these with you. You can jot them down. I'm already there, and we're just going to spend a second there. Here's an example of how Paul used this verb, hold fast. Now, you might be thinking, well, I thought Paul wrote Hebrews I don't think he did. I think Apollo wrote Hebrews. But the reality is we don't know. 
Paul claims his books and his letters. He didn't claim Hebrews. So that's why I'm saying it's somebody else. It's Paul. Or not Paul. But we're going to turn to somebody else and see how he uses hold fast. You follow all that? Here's how Paul uses the word, the verb, hold fast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Listen. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. Now, he's writing to a church. Remember the gospel I preached to you, church. And remember that gospel that you stand in and by which you are being saved. That's a good tense. You are being saved if, there's an if, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain, i.e., and don't hold fast to the word I preach to you. Here's the first example of how Paul uses this word. He uses it in reference to preaching. Now, I feel like every time I say, man, y'all don't miss the preaching of God's word, that it can come off as self-serving because I prepared something and you need to be here to hear it. Right? I put all this effort in. And man, I, listen, I need to share with you early on in this ministry of preaching. A lot of times I felt that way. I carried that into the pulpit. Like, man, people can't even get their Sunday clothes on, brush their teeth and hair, and come up here and hear what I spent 40 hours preparing. Just know I'm beyond that. I am. As I'm encouraging you right now, I'm seeing because it's right here in front of us. Paul says, hold fast to the word that I preach to you. The people of God are going to have an appetite for the preached word. They're going to say, man, I need that. It's my ultimate reality week in, week out. I need to go get that stuff because without it, I could land anywhere. Without it, I could interpret one thing one way or one thing another and never really make any sense of it. It's the lens with which I view the world and I need it week in, week out, holding fast to the preached word. Here's another example also from Paul of how he uses it. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You stay in Hebrews 3 because we're coming back there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, sort of the closing section for the first letter to the Thessalonians, and it says this, kind of a sampling of things he's closing this letter with. Rejoice always, church. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. As I read that passage, hold fast what is good. It made me think of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's another version of hold fast to good stuff. That's what God's people do. We hold fast to the good stuff. Now, back in Hebrews chapter 3, here's another use of it a few verses later. Same author in this case, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to this use. For we, there it is again, we share in Christ if indeed we Hold our original confidence firm to the end. That word hold is the same word as hold fast. Now, I don't know why ESV guys left out the fast, but it's the same word. 
If we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. And then the last little example is just a few pages over in Hebrews chapter 3. There are many examples. I'm just giving you a sampling. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Listen to this. This is second in a list of lettuces. Beginning in verse 19, the Hebrews preacher says, Man, look, this is what God has done. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, through the cross. So there's three let us's. The first one is let us draw near then with a true heart full of assurance. And here's the second let us. Let us then hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession of our hope. What I want you to see about this verb is that this verb is a verb. This verb requires effort. Now, I didn't think this through in advance. I'm sure there's some verbs that require no effort at all. But this verb, if you think about holding fast, requires effort. It's like the, 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 the visual of somebody rappelling down a rock face and they're holding on to that rope for dear life. It involves effort. It's not effortless. You have to grip and you have to grab and you have to tense and you have to engage. There's this weird thing that I don't know if it's American or if it's Western or if it's modern, but there's weird thought that if something is effortless, then it must be true. Think about how we engage love. I fell in love with this girl. It's effortless. I was just swept up. I was caught up. I'm head over heels in love. The sound of this effortless. If it's effortless, it must be true. Really? <laughs> how many people found out that that's a lie? I did. Man, for Christy, it was love at first sight. <laughs> She's not here today, so I can say that. It wasn't long before she found out it's work. She's got to hold fast to this dude. She's got to put up with this dude sometimes. She's got to hold on to something that's difficult sometimes to hold on to. The language that we use of love, swept off my feet, falling in love, head over heels in love. The language actually that Jesus uses, which I don't think is an accident at all. Listen to this. It's just so appropriate. Matthew, don't turn there, just listen. Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. What he says about this thing that's so familiar to us about falling in, in verse 5, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hold fast is a verb, and it involves effort, and it's effort that we do together. I'm going to tell you right now, whenever you first come to faith in Christ, there may be some of this head over heels effect. There may be some of this swept up off my feet. I met my Savior, but I promise you, if you stick with it a while, you're going to find, oh, it matures into a real holding fast. Just like those of you that are happily married, you know that you grew past the warm fuzzies. The warm fuzzies were great, 
but you moved past the warm fuzzies to the holding fast stage and you found a love that's deeper and truer and more meaningful than the warm fuzzies. The verb that's associated with assurance involves effort. Hear it. Effort. Now, the two things that he tells us to hold fast to. He doesn't just say hold fast and then leave us hanging. He gives us two trajectories for holding fast, and they're related. The first one is to hold fast to our confidence. If you're in Hebrews, turn to chapter 4. should be easy for you. You're probably pretty close to that. There's a nuance here in the Greek, in the Hellenistic context, where in the Hellenistic context, they use this word for confidence to have to do with how they could approach their civic leaders. They could go to a senator or to a Roman leader boldly. That's the sort of context the Greek and Roman government wanted to have where these people, senators, for example, represented the people. That's the nuance for the Hellenistic context. But in the Hellenistic Jewish church, this word took on a whole new meaning. This word, this confidence that the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church to hold fast to is the confidence with which we can approach God. Hold fast to the confidence with which we can approach God. Listen, here's two examples. First one's in Hebrews chapter 4. The next one's in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen, here's the first one. Beginning in verse 15. This is so good. You want to know what, how, how to have assurance, what to hold on to, what to hold fast to. Here's the first one. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. That's what's being spoken of here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the confidence that's being spoken of here. Here's the other example in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at it. Verse 19 is the passage I just read, and I'm going to read it again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by anything you've ever done or anything you could ever do, not by how good a person you could be, not by how nice a person you could be, not by how many poor people you've tended to, not by how many puppies you've saved or how many whales. We enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, that's confidence. It has no confidence in yourself. That's where people get stuck on assurance so often. Man, I'm just kind of fearful, you know, I'm, messed up or I'm a loser it's besetting sin that I'm kind of stuck on if that's where you land you ought to be fearful I'm fearful with you if that's where we land what we're told to hold fast to what we're told to be confident in has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Christ did The confidence that we have comes from surety of what Christ accomplished in the cross and the boldness with which we can now approach 
a holy God. Man, that's assurance. Christ's work was that effective. Christ's work was that sure that I will, and not only and I can, and not only will I, or that I can, but I will approach a white-hot, holy God. Man, that's confidence. I'll show you a picture of the ante or the fulfillment. I'm not sure what it is. It's just a picture that I think rounds this out a little bit. I want you to turn to this passage, Zechariah chapter 3. If you have the English Standard Version and typical version, it's not some big massive study guide or study version, it's on page 794. Zechariah, you might need some help with Zechariah. I know you're not spending a lot of time thumbing through Zechariah. But man, I'm going to tell you right now, I think this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I love it. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is a picture of confidence. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Joshua is representing the nation of Israel at this point. They've been in Babylonian exile. They're about to be restored, or they're in the process of being restored. And Joshua's representing a nation that has proven themselves um, unfaithful. I'll go with that word this morning since we have little kids in here. Unfaithful. They've proven themselves to, uh, to fail. We'll, we'll leave it at that. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and there's Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's called elsewhere the accuser. That's what Satan does. And the Lord said to Satan, shut it. That's what he's about to say. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked? From the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now our versions are really tame and nice. The word there actually means clothed in garments with excrement all over them. That's right. We're talking filthy. Joshua is in a bad state standing before holy God. Look what happens. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Get those nasty clothes off of Joshua, who's representing the people that I have set my love on, and put some pure vestments on that bad boy. And say, no, by the way, shut it. And then Zechariah is so overwhelmed in this vision. It's like an interactive vision, which really makes me laugh. Zechariah is taking in the details of this vision, and then Zechariah says, in the vision, hey, let them put a clean turban on his head too. Don't leave his head uncovered. Put a clean turban on his head as well. So they, it's interactive. It's crazy. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And I just want to add in there that Satan was 
quiet. Satan had nothing to say at that point. And I want to tell you, that is a beautiful picture of the confidence that we have before the living God because of what Christ has done for us. We have been brands plucked from the fire. What is a brand plucked from the fire? It's something that was about to burn, but you know what? It was plucked and it's not. It might still be hot. It's not going to be consumed. Ought it have been? Yeah. Excrement covered clothing before a holy God? But by his grace and his mercy, he's plucked it from the fire. So now you come in that high court of heaven and you tell Satan to shut it and you stand before a holy God, not because, not because of anything that you've ever done, because remember the clothing you were wearing. You stand before a holy God in confidence because of what Christ has done. That's assurance. That's something worth holding fast to. And you know what Satan's going to do when it comes to assurance? He's going to say, remember that sin that you, it's like a besetting sin, isn't it? This happens to you a lot, doesn't it? You lose your temper a lot, don't you? You're not a believer. You're not truly his. And the angel of the Lord says, shut it. He's not in here on his own grounds. He's not in here on his own effort. He's in here because of the finished work of Christ. Shut it. Man, that's confidence right there. You want to be confident in your own efforts? You're going to ride a roller coaster of assurance. But if you're going to land on confidence in his work, man, that's, that's stable. That's not going to budge. Hold fast to that. Confidence in his approachability because of Christ's work. Secondly, second thing to hold fast to is our boasting in our hope. Turn to Ephesians 2. Our boasting in our hope. Ephesians 2. Turn there. I want you I want to hear some pages. I want y'all to see it. I don't have you turn everywhere I go. I have an economy of effort for you. Ephesians chapter 2. The second thing we're holding fast to, the first is our confidence. The second thing we're holding fast to is our boasting in our hope. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to import this picture that we saw from Zechariah into this passage as we go. Listen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You proved yourself to be Israel, unfaithful. You paid for it in some ways by going into exile, but you didn't pay for it ultimately because you're a brand plucked from the fire. I set my love on you, and I'm going to preserve a remnant of you. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that's not working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all wore excrement-covered clothing. It wasn't just a Gentile thing, Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying. It was a Jewish thing too. We were all wearing filthy rags before a holy God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and wearing excrement-covered clothing, he made us alive together with Christ. He plucked us from the fire. By grace you've been saved, and he's raised us up with him. He's put pure vestments on him. He even put a new pure lid, the little turban thing on him. 
And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, Ephesian church, you've been saved through faith. And this saving is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You got to know in this central passage on explaining the gospel that our boasting is going to fit in there and our works are going to fit in there because that's what we're prone to. We're prone to leaning on our own little works and boasting in our own little works. Before I really had an understanding of what happens in salvation, what God has done for us in salvation, I sort of had this view of a partnership where I'm out in the ocean and I'm floating around and I'm, I'm doing the, you know, the egg beater kick. I'm out there doing the egg beater and I see a boat come up, you know, and Jesus throws me a life buoy. Poof, I mean, he's good at it. You know, he's like, mm, and it lands right here. And I'm like, mm, and he pulls me into shore. Scott and I have had this conversation a thousand times. That used to be my view of the salvation. I put my arm through that buoy and he pulls me to shore. He saved me, right? Well, the reality is what I'm prone to if there's any work involved in salvation that I'm going to boast in that salvation, when Jesus pulls me to the, to the boat and he picks me up by the scruff of the neck and pulls me in the boat and I'm laying there heaving, soaking wet, by the time I dry off, I'm thinking to myself, man, did you see how I grabbed that life buoy? <laughs> Can't nobody grab a life buoy like I can. <laughs> man, I grabbed that thing. I was like, Ugh. I held on hard while he pulled me in, but phew, I held on. The reality is that's not the way it works. That's what we're prone to is boasting in our own little, tiny, little, ridiculous efforts. The reality is we're laying on the bottom of the ocean. I'm not doing no egg beater kick. We're laying on the bottom of the ocean. And he dives down there. Whoosh, whoosh, he doesn't even need scuba gear. He's down there. Mm, grabs us up. You know, does a little lifeguard thing, wraps around, pulls me up to the boat, pulls me in the boat. I'm dead. He does what they do in the movies. You know, they breeze in a couple times. Water comes gurgling out. <laughs> breathes new life into me. That's what he did for you. The same God that said, let there be light is the same God that shone in your heart and spoke life into being because you were dead. Dead, hard, concrete, hard, rock hard hearts. You couldn't even see the gospel, except that he gives you eyes to see it. That's what he did in salvation. So that no man may boast, because that's what we're prone to. See how I grabbed that buoy? Man, it was awesome. Turn back a page before. Here's what we have to boast in. Galatians chapter 6. Here's what we have to boast in. Beginning in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast. Now, if there was ever a dude that could have boasted, it would have been Paul. I mean, Paul, he had like a Harvard version degree of theology. He was a Jew among Jews. Man, he had it going on start to finish. He'd been beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, given lashes, and Paul says, I got nothing to boast about. 
on my best day, I got nothing to boast about except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He pulled me up on that boat and he breathed new light in, life into me. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That's the church. He's writing to a Gentile church, Galatians. He calls them the Israel of God. Man, peace is going to be on the people and mercy is going to be on the people that are walking by this rule that are boasting only in Christ's cross, period. Man, you want some tutoring on assurance? It's a goods right there. You got two things to be assured in. You can have confidence in, your, in the approachability of God because of what, of Christ, what, what Christ has done. And you've got confidence, boasting in the only thing that's worthy to be boasted in, Christ's cross and his work. Now, the last thing. I got a little medley for you. I'm not going to sing. It's a medley of passages. Medley, not a melody. Save that for someone else. A medley. Now, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, this little phrase is not in there. But there's a little note down in the bottom. If you want to turn back to Hebrews chapter 3, you can do that because you probably want to see this. I don't know why the Hebrew or the uh, ESV guys didn't include this phrase, but they did include a little wee note. At the end of verse 6, so here's how it reads. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then the little wee tiny note for number four in my Bible is some manuscripts insert firm to the end. Firm to the end. Now why the ESV Bible didn't choose to use that? You need to know there are different versions of Greek, or Greek New Testaments out there. And our translators use some different resources. You can trust our translations. But the NAS chose to use a translation or version that has that phrase in there, firm to the end. And then our ESV guys just chose to put a little note. Some manuscripts have that in there. Now, I think that little phrase is so, so massively, majorly important. You see it a few verses later, a verse we already looked at this morning in chapter 3, verse 14. We share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. So whether you like it there or not, it's there a few verses later. And firm to the end is key. If someone wanted to ask me the number one qualifier for what does it mean to be a Christian, what's the evidence of true Christianity, what's the evidence of true faith, I would say perseverance to the very end. Till the end. Not that they had great form. You know, they're like a gymnast and they're, you know, they try that for a couple years and they bail on it. But I'm talking like they, they might be ugly, like, you know, flipping off a bar, falling all over the place, banging their knees up, but they, they're relentless. They do it to their last breath. That's the mark of a true Christian. 
perseverance, till the end. Man, there's some people, they got, man, they can work that, that balance bean, but they bail. And then other people, they're pretty sloppy, but they are relentless. They are relentless. And this phrase, till the end, is so important. This really, more than getting it, when's Jesus coming back, is the central message of the book of Revelation. The central message of the book of Revelation is that the people of God are to be what's called in the book of Revelation, nikao, which means overcomer. It's where we get the little Nike name from, the Greek word nikao, that the people of God are overcomers because we finished to the end. That's the, that's the biggest message of the book of Revelation. How to not quit. How to see that he's working out details even when it looks like all's lost to where you keep going, to where you stay in the race, where you don't bail. I sent out an email this week and I thought um, as I sent it out, I had one response from my wife and she was like, man, that was really good. And I was like, you're awesome because I don't know if anybody else read it. But the... (laughs) She is awesome. I needed that. She's the wind beneath my wings. So, but in this email, if you read it, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, you might want to go back and read that. Colossians chapter 4. Don't turn, just listen to this guy. Colossians chapter 4, Paul closes the book of Colossians and he says these words. He's mentioning sort of some people. It's a passage I read last week. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Demas. There's a mention there of Demas. Hey, Demas, I'm finishing up a letter here to the church at Colossia. And I'm, you know, scribbling it out. And I'm going to greet some folks. I'm going to greet um, uh, the brothers of Laodicea to Nympha. I'm going to greet uh, Luke. You want to greet anybody? Luke, okay, Luke, the physician, the great physician, greets some folks. Demas, are you in? You want me to mention you? You have greetings? Yeah, I'm in, man. I'm in. I love those people because I love Jesus and I'm in. Okay, Demas, I got you in there. Good. Sends it off. Now, this is the heartbreak. In 2 Timothy, Paul's reached sort of the end of his ministry. And he says these words, writes these words. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, the guy that wanted to greet the Colossians with me, the guy that was traveling around on the A-team ministry with Paul, planting churches. Demas has since bailed and fallen back in love love with the world. And you have to ask the question as you look at Demas, did you say, You have to ask the question, well, did Demas hold fast? And you have to say no. He didn't hold fast. He let go of the rope. 
When I was a kid growing up, we used to listen to this guy named Brother Dave Gardner. He's a comedian. It wasn't, he, his kind of his spiel was kind of like he was a pastor. And it was really ridiculous. It was what I listened to as a kid. We had two records, Willie Nelson, Redheaded Stranger, and uh, Brother Dave Gardner. So we listened to it over and over and over again. Got it all down. And I remember Brother Dave Gardner saying one time, he said, you know, they asked the old man, said, hey, old man, you lived here all your life? And the old man says, no, not yet. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things you have to think about for a minute. And then once you think about it, you're like, oh, God, it is kind of funny. That's a great way to think about your faith, though, and assurance. Man, could I be a Demas? Yeah, I could be. I could spend nine and a half years in ministry preaching and teaching, shepherding a family, and I could potentially walk out on you and God. It could happen to any single one of us. It happened to Demas. In nine and a half years of ministry in Greenville, it's happened a lot. I have a list of people that come to my mind as I think about what Demas did here. I think, oh man, I'm heartbroken over people that had some sort of signs of life. They said, greet the Colossians. Yeah, man, we love Jesus and we love them. And then a few months later, a few minutes, years later, crickets. That's not some sort of old-fashioned thing, and it's not some sort of new thing. It happens all the time. And could it happen to anybody? Yeah, I think it could. Demas let go of the lifeline. He stopped holding fast, and you have to ask the question, well, what does that mean for Demas? What well, means he's not holding on anymore? I was telling Scott about this thought this morning. I had this mindset of how many conversations I have with people about their faith and about assurance. And like, man, I'm just so concerned and so fearful about my faith. I'm just not sure I can even hang on. And to me, that's like being on a train where you're pretty sure it's going to the destination you want it to go to. You're expecting. I'm pretty sure this is going there, but the fact that there's any element of doubt at all leads me to step over to a door and bail out? I'm just going to jump off the train? It doesn't even make sense for a little tiny shred of doubt to pull a Demas. Boom, I'm out. And we don't know how this led up to Demas's departure, whether it was a conversation, I don't know if I can hang in here for this thing or not. I'm not sure if I'm on the bubble or not. But maybe Paul encouraged him with the same thing the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church with. Hold fast, Demas. Stay on the train. The only thing that's sure is if you bail out of the train, you're not going there anymore. If you're hearing a sermon like this and you're like, man, I really wanted some tips on how I could be more assured in myself. And you're like, I didn't get them this morning. You're right, you didn't. There was nothing in this sermon that was confidence building on you. It was all on Christ and what he's done. You're like, man, I really wanted some tips on how I could be more assured. If you're really aching for that, man, I can't give that to you. All I can do is tell you to stay on the train. Hold fast. The only thing he's given us that's worth holding fast to. 
If you're so fearful that there's a little shred of doubt that this thing may not be going the, where, the direction I think it's going, so I'm going to jump off the train. The only thing that's sure there is you're not on the train anymore. What do you think happened to Demas? Well, he's not on the train anymore. What do you think happened to Demas? He stopped holding fast. Man, here's the medley. I'll just share a few passages with you. This is where assurance comes from of really reading God's Word and really seeing what He tells us to be assured in. Matthew chapter 10, I'm just going to read these passages to you. You can jot them down. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings before, for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved relentless that's the mark of a true Christian they just don't quit Romans 11 19 through 22. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is embedded within the conversation about the Jews and the Gentiles, how the Gentiles were grafted into the branches or into the, the, the olive tree. Branches were broken off, that being Jews, so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who get off the train. Severity toward those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You fearful about your salvation? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But stay on the train. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Man, there it is. Two more passages. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 9, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And the last one, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, we could insert wearing excrement-covered clothing, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, wearing new garments and a new turban. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, 
Just this last week, I've had two conversations on assurance. Two conversations with people that I love, that I care about deeply, who are fretful and fearful over their salvation and their eternal destiny. And I assured both of them with the same words that I assured you with this morning. It's all we've got, but it's everything. Confidence in the approachability of the living God, one, and boasting in a hope that's outside of us, in a work that's outside of us. That's where assurance comes from. For the Lord's Supper this morning, I'm going to share a little reading with you. It's from a book called Religious Affections. The guy that wrote this book was a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in the New England area in the 1700s. In the 1730s and 1740s, something happened up there called the Great Awakening. Significant revival came to this area. Thousands and thousands of people came to faith in Christ. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Might be a familiar sermon, or at least the name of it might be familiar to you. Some of you who may have studied it as a literary work. It is a significant literary work. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor of a church there in Northampton, Massachusetts. And during these couple of decades, he had the opportunity, our duty, our challenge, I don't know what you want to call it, of preaching through this great awakening, but then pastoring in the aftermath. Now, what I say, pastoring in the aftermath, is what happened is thousands of people came to faith in Christ. He's reading. From what I understand, I don't, we don't know this for sure. From what I understand, he read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know that for sure. I've just heard that. Anyway, it's a long sermon. You think my sermons are long? That's a long sermon. And people are falling out in the aisles. In a context where that sort of overt show of emotion would have been like, whoa, what is happening here? People are falling out, flopping on the ground and saying, I need to follow Jesus. He preached during that time of this great awakening and then he pastored these thousands of people who came to faith in Christ, or at least some of them. And in the years afterward, he had the chance to see what looked like was going to be legit faith and what was just a farce. And he wrote this book about that. And this book, whether you know it or not, if you've been at Crosspoint Fellowship for a period of time, this book and what God showed Jonathan Edwards in some ways has shaped our view of ministry. In this book, he records seven things that are no sure sign of true religious affection or faith. And then he records 12 things that seem to be good, sure, biblical signs of real faith. And he makes the qualifier, nobody can know the heart, but here's what it seems like, biblically. And here's what he says about assurance. The one who's not a believer, he calls a hypocrite. I'm just, I want you to acquaint you with his language. A hypocrite. Maybe someone who fell out an aisle, in an aisle on sinners of the hands of an angry God, but didn't go the distance. Or maybe they went the distance, but with a different attitude. One that doesn't look like it's true. Listen to what he says. If you struggle with assurance, maybe this will help you. 
When once a hypocrite is thus established in a false hope, he has not those things to cause him to call his hope in question that oftentimes are the occasion of the doubting of true saints. Right off the bat, he acknowledges that there is such thing as doubting for true saints. Hypocrites don't doubt. Why would they? Listen to what he says. Four of them, and they're all so good. I'm going to read them, all four. First, he has not that cautious spirit, the hypocrite. He has not that cautious spirit, that great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation, and that dread of being deceived. A hypocrite doesn't care. A true saint realizes how important it is to have a sure foundation. The comforts of the true saints increase awakening and caution and a lively sense of how great a thing it is to appear before an infinitely holy, just, and omniscient judge. But false comforts put an end to these things and dreadfully stupefy the mind. Good. Secondly, the hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness. Remember the conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 9 with the Pharisees. He healed the blind man, and then he calls the Pharisees blind. You don't think we're blind too, do you? They were blind. The hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness and the deceitfulness of his own heart and that mean opinion of his own understanding that the true saint has. Those hypocrites are deluded with false discoveries and affections are ever more highly conceited of their light and understanding. Thirdly, the devil does not assault the hope of the hypocrite as he does the hope of a true saint. You ever wondered if this thing is just a, just a story? Would it alarm you to know that your pastor, one of your pastors has and does? Would it scare you? Whoa, wait a second. But here's where I land. Here's where I'm encouraged. And this is why this is so encouraging to me. Listen to what he says. The devil is a great enemy to a true Christian hope, not only because it tends greatly to the comfort of him that hath it, but also because it's a thing of a holy, heavenly nature, greatly tending to promote and cherish grace in the heart and a great incentive to strictness and diligence in the Christian life. But he is no enemy to the hope of a hypocrite. Why would he bother? Which above all things establish his interest in him that has it. A hypocrite may retain his hope without opposition as long as he lives. The devil never disturbing it nor attempting to disturb it. But there is perhaps no true Christian but what has his hope assaulted by Satan. That's an encouragement to me. To know that another brother, how many years ago? 300 something years ago was encouraged with the reality that Satan doesn't mess with dead people. He doesn't mess with the spiritually dead. It's the spiritually living that he goes after, boy, accusing, lying. Here's the fourth thing. Fourth. This, this is the treasure to me. Fourthly, he who has a false hope has not that sight of his own corruptions which the saint has. A true Christian has ten times so much to do with his own heart and his corruptions as a hypocrite. And the sins of his heart and practice appear to him in their blackness 
They look dreadful. And it often appears a very mysterious thing that any grace can be consistent with such corruption or should be in such a heart. But a false hope hides corruption, covers it all over, and the hypocrite looks clean and bright in his own eyes. If sometimes your assurance is struggling because you're looking at your own life and you're saying, man, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I lost my temper. I got upset with somebody. I raised my voice. I overspent. I stuffed my face. I was lazy. I wasted this day. I was jealous. I was backbiting. I was gossiping. Man, just insert the problem. All these whispers, all these things that Satan says, accusing, accusing. Look at his dirty rags. We have to be reminded, no, no, Satan, I rebuke you. Shut it. My presence in the throne room was never, nor will it ever be, based on my own efforts and my own performance. It's based on Christ alone. I'm a brand plucked from the fire because he did the work on the cross that got me there. And I stand in clean, pure vestments, reckoned clean, reckoned pure, righteousness imputed to me. That's where assurance comes from. And you want assurance? It's plentiful if you're looking for it in the right places. We're going to have the supper now. I thought about this context as I was preparing for this supper. I thought on the the night before Christ was crucified, the eve of his cross, he had the Lord's Supper. And he said, do this, what we're doing here, in remembrance of me. And it's in this context that his present Demas left the table. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him, hey, John, ask Jesus of whom he's speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. You need to know, when you leave the table, when you have partaken of this meal week after week after week, and then you leave the table and you bail on God, you might not realize you're in league with Judas. That might be offensive to you. You know what? I hope it is. What do you think you're doing when you step away from his table? What do you think you're doing when you step away from fellowship with him? You are betraying him. Hebrews says that you are crucifying Christ all over again. When you step away from that table, your lot is going to be no different than it was for Judas and no different than it was for Demas. 
So what should that do? The train runs to that table. Man, I want to make a beeline for that meal. I want that meal week in, week out. Anything that's keeping me from engaging that meal, maybe I'm crossways with a brother, maybe I haven't confessed sin one to another, maybe something is keeping me from having right fellowship with man and with God that's keeping me from that table, I want to reconcile that ASAP because that dinner is coming. That train is passing through that town on the way to glory. And I want that meal. I encourage you in these next few minutes as you take this meal, enjoy it. Hold fast to it and realize you must never let it go. If you have a little thought in your head that says, because I've taken this, I'm good with God, remember that stupid joke. Hey, old man, you lived here all your life? Nope, not yet. Till the end. Take it today, take it next week, take it the week after, till the end. That's where assurance comes from. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful we have something to hold fast to. I'm so thankful that you haven't just given us a verb and left us to figure it out, but you've given us two really awesome realities to embrace this morning, that we have full and ample and able access to you right now. As we're practicing prayer to you right now, we're doing that only because of what Christ has done. We stand before you boldly this morning because of what Christ has done. We hold fast to that right now. And secondly, Lord, we hold fast to what we are celebrating and remembering and enjoying in these next few minutes, a work that was completely outside of us, where we were dragged from the bottom of the ocean. We were lifted onto the boat where you breathed new life into us through the finished work of Christ. And we boast in that alone. We enjoy that together as we enjoy this meal. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's eat.